Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Rick Ridgway calculates that he spent more than five years of his life sleeping in tents, small tents, he says, pitched in the world's most remote regions. Whether at elevation or raising a family at sea level, those years taught him, he writes in his new book, Life Lived Wild, to distinguish matters of consequence from matters of inconsequence. Some of his adventures made news. The first American ascent of K2, the first traverse of Borneo, the first crossing on foot of a corner of Tibet, so remote no outsider had ever seen it. In the book, he also describes his journey from outdoor adventure to unlikely environmental activist. Uh, Rick Ridgway recently retired from Patagonia, where he served as vice president of public engagement. Today, chairs several climate change nonprofits, including One Earth. And Life Lived Wild is his seventh book. He recently received the prestigious 2022 Explorers Club medal. Rick Ridgway, uh, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Yeah, Tom, nice to be with you. I should mention that uh, next week, Tuesday, May 10th, 6.30 uh, in the evening, uh, Salt Lake City Patagonia Store will host Rick Ridgway for a presentation on his new book, Life Lived Wild. An RSVP is required, and we'll have that link on our website, upr.org. That event is co-hosted by Utah uh, Sierra Club. So this is your seventh uh, book, um, and uh, it's uh, it's essentially a memoir. Did, did, did you set out to write a memoir? Uh, you know, I didn't, Tom. Uh, in the beginning, I set out just to write a collection of stories about my adventures. Um, I finished them, and at the end of the day, there were 52 stories, and the book was more of a doorstop uh, than a publishable <laughs> tome. <laughs> and uh, I sent it to a good friend of mine who uh, was in one of the stories in the book, uh, a lawyer friend. Uh, and she got back to me and said, well, you know, I, I did enjoy it, Rick, but, you know, it's it's a little bit long, and it's a bunch of stories that are trying to be a memoir, but they're not. And she challenged me to go into a rewrite and take the stories and try to be more open with the reader about what the stories may have uh, taught me over the years uh, and and integrate them more <clears throat> with just a more personal look at my life. And so I, I, I took that challenge. Um, 52 stories became 25. And I hope I succeeded in turning it into a memoir, uh, as opposed to just that kind of collection of a bunch of unrelated stories, uh, unrelated other than I was the main character through, through all of them. You uh, talk about, early in the book, you talk about forks in the road. Uh, one is your decision to go to Everest uh, instead of grad school. I want to talk about that. But first, uh, uh, this this passage was just incredible to me. Uh, I wonder if you could tell this story. Uh, you're living with your father, I think, out on a kind of a remote ranch, 20-mile uh, 20, uh, bus ride, right, to go to school. So so one day, the, the bus uh, drives up to where your house used to be, and it's it's burned down. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, I was in, sitting towards the back of the bus uh, next to one of my best friends as we came over the rise and the and the bus slowed. And what I remember most is not just the chimney uh, is the only thing standing around the still smoldering embers of what used to be my house, but rather all my friends and schoolmates <clears throat> turning around and staring at me, including the bus driver. <clears throat> and he wasn't sure what to do. Uh and I was in shock, but then I looked at my friend sitting next to me, and I said, well, can I go home to your house? And he said, sure. So I looked at the bus driver, and I said, Bob, we called the bus driver by his first name, take me to 
the Doug's house. Uh, and then uh, about a day later, my dad showed up. I lived with him uh, alone. And uh, he had kind of, he disappeared. I wasn't sure what had happened, uh, just to add to my dismay and shock. Uh, and eventually I found out that he tried to bur- he burned the house down hoping to get insurance money and then he 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 abandoned me and just disappeared uh, I didn't hear from him again for over a year until I got a postcard from some remote island in the South Pacific where he was trying to do whatever recovery he he needed to put his own life back together you know I I we all have those experiences trying to figure out our our parents and finally years later um, once I became an adult myself, I could look back at his own life. I, you know, I realized that the only through line of my father's life was, you know, an inability to, um, to, to address responsibility. And so there I was on my own, uh, living with my best friend. And it turned out to be a real silver lining because it, I was 14 years old and it just forced me to be independent. Uh, and that I think was the beginning of a path that really served me well you know, through the rest of my life. Um, I hope little things like that are some of those lessons that readers can take from my own story and apply to to their own lives. You know, things like how the adversities that we all face growing up, you know, we can really turn them into strengths. I think if we try to find in any adversity that, you know, source of strength, it's almost always there if we look for it. Yeah, you you write that uh, looking back, this was an extraordinary decision of your mother to allow you to stay for, I guess, the rest of the school year with your friend Doug. Uh, but it taught you some lessons, as you said. There's there's a tender scene in the book where you you learn of uh, your parents' divorce. You you, did, you you had no clue, right? You're 14 years old. You're uh, you learn of the divorce and and um, you sit down, and start to cry. Your your friend puts his arm around you. Yeah, it, I, I can remember that so poignantly. It's, you know, all of us can with scenes like that in our own lives. Uh, I had grown up in Southern California, and uh, we lived in a, a rural area of Orange County uh, back when it was still oranges instead of track houses. And my parents, uh, they hadn't separated. Uh, they had gone different directions, and my father had moved to Northern California, and the, the, the line that they told my brother and me was that <clears> – <throat> Uh, they had bought us a ranch up there, and my father had gone up in advance to get it ready for all of us to reunite there. And so I had followed him. That's what I was doing, living up there when he burned the house down. And then, as you said, Tom, my mother, she's the hero of this story. Um, she had the strength, and it was a strength that I only could recognize now as an adult to let me stay there for the rest of the school year with my best friend and his family who took me under their wing. Uh, and, and she was so prescient in that because she had she must have had this sense that, you know, I had enough fortitude in me to figure this out, to, you know, be on my own uh, responsibly. And, and she was right. I, I, I pulled it off. And then when that year was over, I left and moved down to the southern part of the state to join her and finish my last two years of high school. But in that interim, I'd been away three short years. The orange groves were gone. They were paved over. Uh, the house where I had grown up was a supply depot for a construction yard. Uh, and in those last two years of high school, I took my little Honda motor scooter and I would ditch school and go up into the mountains surrounding the Los Angeles basin, just trying to escape, to find some sense of solace like I had discovered in the northern part of the state. And that was the origin of my real connection to mountaineering. I mean, while I was 
living in the northern part of the state before the house burned down. Uh, one day I received a, the mail, uh, my mother's subscription to National Geographic, and there was a cover story of the first American ascent of Mount Everest with a picture of Jim Whitaker standing on the summit holding his ice axe with hurricane winds whipping the flags. And when I saw that, I just said, that's who I want to be. I want to be that guy. And as I started to, uh, on my own, go up into the mountains around the Los Angeles Basin, often in the winter when they were iced over, um, one day I was on a, a, a narrow ridge going up to the top of a peak called Mount Baldy, and I slipped and uh, on the ice, and I realized I could easily have killed myself. So I went to a, the only store I could find that had mountaineering equipment. I bought an ice axe and crampons, just like Jim Whitaker's in that photograph, and uh, uh, the only thing I could find close to an instruction manual called Freedom of the Hills. And, and I started reading the book to teach myself how to use my crampons and ice axe on my solo journeys, and that made my mother's maternal radar bleep. And she sent me that summer of my graduation to uh, the first Outward Bound School in the western part of the U.S., and, and, and that's where I learned the fundamentals of of climbing. And from then on, I, I was hooked. That was my path. I wanted to be Jim Whitaker. I was sure I could do it. Mm. What uh, yeah. What do you think you were looking for? What 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 appealed to you? And, and I guess a, a follow-up question, um, <laughs> did you find that when you started getting out there? Yeah. You know, that. remember I, t- I told you how this friend of mine had challenged me to take my 52 stories and, and turn them into a memoir. And and she said, uh, you know, Rick, as I told you a minute ago, Tom, that she she convinced me to be open about it. But she also did something that was so prescient. She said, you know, what you need to do is think about where you started and where you're at now and see what the, what the through line is in, in your own life, you know, from – from those early days when you bought your first ice axe and crampons, uh, what was it that that really lured you to the mountains? And and where are you at now? <clears throat> so I took a month to think about that, and finally I got back to her and I said, her name was Can- is Candace. I said, Candace, I I think when I when I started out, you know, it was all about the adventures. It was all about striving to get to the to the top. The, the sense of accomplishment that brought to me, uh, it, it quickly became about my, my friends. And very importantly, it became about the, the places I was able to go to pursuing mountaineering, some of the wild and most remote places on the, on the planet. And then as I look back on the arc of my life, now that I'm 72 years old, I realized that it's not about the climbs and the friends and the places, but now it's all about doing what I can to try and save those places that are so increasingly under threat. So she said, great, now take those 52 stories and throw out every one that doesn't have something to do with that path. Uh, and that's what I did, and and that's where I started, and, and that's where I've ended up now, where whatever time... I have left in front of me. I, I hope to use it as effectively as I can with the, the tools that I have to, to do what I can to, to save those wild places that, as you said at the beginning, I spent five years in pitched in tents uh, 
you know, on, on all these expeditions, places that are now under such threat. And you uh, you saw that in something like real time over the years, right? Uh, the, the, these, these places were under threat. Yeah, I think there's a place in the book somewhere where I, oh, you know, it's I think it's when maybe I'm taking that young woman back to that remote mountain and in uh, in Tibet to find her father's grave, and and again it's when I'm in Antarctica on the Larsen ice shelf, which years later I I read news accounts is is starting to melt and break up and drift in giant icebergs off into the sea. <clears throat> Experiences like that that I relate in the book where I've been able to actually bear witness to climate change, where in the Himalayas over the 30 and 40 years that I've been going there, I've seen the glaciers recede you know, before my own eyes. When I took that young woman back to the mountain where her father had died in 1980, uh, we were there in 2000, just 20 years later, and I had a trouble finding finding his grave because um, the maps I the photographs I had from our trip in 1980 didn't bear any resemblance to the train I was then looking at just 20 years later. And finally, I realized it's because the glaciers had disappeared; they had receded so uh, remarkably that that several of them didn't even exist anymore. Uh, and again, that ice cap in Antarctica, where in human time, I've been able to witness change that is geologic in time. And as I started to wrap my head around that, I realized just how extraordinary that was. I mean, how unbelievably extraordinary that all of us are living in a time where we humans can actually witness uh, change that is geologic in nature in our own single lifetimes. Do you think uh, you were you helped with the Patagonia's efforts, right, in in this uh, area um, after you'd made this transition? Do, do you think uh, companies like that are are doing what they need to do, doing sufficient? Well, Patagonia certainly is, but gosh, I am so you know disappointed to see how few other companies are are following their lead. Um, I mean, it's it's deeply disappointing, and and in fact, it's not just disappointing. It's I, some, I just can't understand it sometimes. <clears throat> to me, it's so obvious uh, the connection between business and the health of the planet. But you know, it's a connection that so few business people seem to really understand. They they don't seem to understand how business depends on a healthy planet to supply all businesses with a healthy and renewable stream of resources. And they don't seem to understand how, you know, all societies depend on a healthy planet. Uh, I mean, clean air and clean water, just obvious examples. But And then they don't seem to get how all markets depend on healthy societies um, to support healthy markets. And, you know, Patagonia's uh, mentor, David Brower, who was one of the early founders or head of the Sierra Club back in the 60s and 70s, he once famously said that that there is no business on a on a dead planet. And to me, that those connections are so obvious. Um, but then again, uh, there seems to be so few business leaders who 
seem to understand that. But it's the core value of uh, Patagonia, and it's uh, why uh, Yvonne and his wife, Melinda Chouinard, uh, continue to own and manage the company uh, that way, um, to use uh, the business uh, in any way they can to protect the health of our one and only home planet. Um, and I, again, uh, it, I'm just disappointed more businesses don't seem to understand and make that connection. I want to have you uh, tell some of the adventures in in the book, and then I want I want to have you uh, introduce me to some of your your friends, the the Do Boys uh, that you that you write about in the book. Um, I'd, I'd like to start with uh, K two. You've you you've been up Everest, right? But uh, K two yeah. seems to have a, a kind of special in in several ways. Uh, one, you you uh, you've you've said that uh, you're glad the first your first summit of K two. And uh, you were uh, part of the first American team to summit K2. You're glad that you, you didn't know is one of the world's most difficult to climb. Why, why, why were you glad? <laughs> yeah, sometimes I, people, you know, when I tell them that I made that first American ascent of K2 with my three partners I was with. <clears throat> um, I some, and uh, people often say, God, isn't that the hardest mountain in the world to climb? And it is regarded now as the hardest high altitude mountain of the 8,000, of the 14 mountains in the world that are higher than 8,000 meters is commonly regarded as the toughest and, and the hardest high altitude peak. And, and then I grin and say, you know, it's a good thing we didn't know that back then. Uh, but then there's a serious part of that comment, too. Uh, it's not just a, a, a joke line because, because it, it reveals how, uh, all of us can be hindered by uh, our own mental barriers that that aren't perhaps as real as, as, as we think they might be. And had we known that uh, we were trying to climb what would then become regarded, commonly regarded as the hardest mountain in the world to climb, it probably would have created an extra mental barrier that didn't really need to be there. It's, it's the same with, you know, the, the, the most famous example that would probably be uh, the four-minute mile when Roger Bannister, uh, you know, broke that record. I, I think it was in 19, early 1950s, 54, perhaps. And then within just a few years, people were commonly breaking the record. And, and that really demonstrates how the barrier of the four-minute mile was as much mental as it was physical. So, you know, that's the, I guess if there's a lesson in that little anecdote, that would be it as well. K two, you've described as a kind of a, a perfect pyramid. I guess it's, it's that's one of the reasons it's so difficult. It's, it's kind of just sharp on all sides. Yeah, yeah, steep uh, pyramid shaped. Uh, no easy route to the top. It is uh, relentlessly difficult from the bottom all the way to the summit. Uh, we climbed it by the northeast ridge, which is uh, the only ridge that is got a, 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 a traversing section uh, so that the pyramid shape is a little bit broken on that northeast side. But even that knife edge was, oof, uh, it would have been probably easier had it been a, a more pyramidal line to the summit. Uh, and in fact, no one in the years since has ever climbed the mountain by that route. I think we've made the, the one and only ascent of that peak. And and when we climbed it, the, the mountain had only been climbed by anybody twice. So we we succeeded in making uh, the third ascent and the, the first ascent without using uh, bottled oxygen. 
but uh, boy, it I I just I think what the I think the thing that I learned on K two that I probably used successfully for the rest of my life more than any other thing was just the the value of of, of tenacity because from the time we arrived at base camp until we got back down to base camp after reaching the summit, it was 68 days. And uh, when we finally did reach the top, we were at the end of the tether, um, out on the branch about as far as you could go with hardly any food and uh, and fuel left to melt snow to make water. We were all the way out and uh, took everything, you know, I could, I could muster to... Uh, complete that climb uh, as I, and I was, I think of the four of us who reached the sunrise probably physically the weakest. It just took every bit of strength I could mine to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You'd make one step and have to hunker down and breathe 10 times and then make the next one. <clears throat> but we did, we pulled it off. And, uh, and that I, I took from that and applied back to my life at sea level um, that lesson of, of what you can do if you if you do discipline yourself just to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Although the other important thing that I learned not just on that climb but uh, on all of them over the years, and that's probably why you know I'm an old mountaineer still alive, was was how you really also need to develop that skill to listen to your internal beeper when it starts to buzz if there is. Uh, danger uh, that's too risky, um, things that you can't control or manage, and and to know when it's time to turn around and go back down. So those two things together, <laughs> that uh, that's pretty useful for anybody to know how to do. Yeah, certainly. You learn lessons, as you said, and uh, we'll we'll uh, capture those as we go along here in this conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wonder, just before we go to a break, um, how do you? Has your management of risk changed over the years? And 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 uh, specifically, uh, these are those you know, da- dangerous things you routinely are doing out there. Uh, how did you, how do you manage the fear? Well, uh, you I think you can learn to manage fear through experience of getting through uh, fear inducing uh, experiences and uh, and getting through them successfully. Each one kind of builds on the other. In the, ter- in, in the way it gives you, uh, you know, the, the tools to, to manage risk. But after I got married and had a family, the, you know, the equation, of course, changed. Um, and I was unwilling to take the risk then that I was before. And, and I, I was increasingly aware of that. There's a, a story in the book of how I'm hired by ABC television to uh, – direct a film of a team uh, attempting to dog mush across Antarctica from one side to the other. And we were uh, on the film crew uh, flying in on an old airplane to join them. And, and the plane kept breaking down. And the crew started lying to us about what the problems were, uh, saying that instead of the plane's mechanics, it was weather that was forcing us back when we learned it wasn't. And, and finally, uh, about the third or fourth time, uh, the plane had taken off and then returned i said you know that's i told myself that's it this is a risk i'm i'm unwilling to take uh, even though i'm going to be disappointing you know uh, abc i'm going to be disappointing the team everybody's depending on me to go in there and direct this film but i have a higher responsibility 
and um, and that was it. I turned around and quit and went home. Hmm. And I never looked back on that. Yeah, I never looked back on that. Once when I was in my early 20s, I was doing an ascent in the Peruvian Andes of a steep ridge on a peak called Wansan that had never been climbed before. And right below the summit, there was only two of us left on the team that had the juice left to take one last try at it. Right below the summit, I encountered a section of ice and had no more ice screws. And the guy I was with didn't have any experience climbing hard ice. And uh, I was 23 years old and I decided to turn around right below the summit on what still in my career would today have been one of the greatest climbs of my career. And looking back on that, I have no regrets at all. In fact, I'm kind of proud that even at that early age, I had the instinct to know when to go back down and call it a day. We are talking, you've just joined us with Rick Ridgway. Uh, the book is Life Lived Wild, Adventures at the Edge of the Map. Rick uh, Ridgway um, calculates he spent more than five years of his life sleeping in tents, small tents, he says, pitched at the world's most remote regions. And we've talked about K2. Uh, he's also uh, famous for the first traverse of Borneo, the first crossing on foot of a corner of Tibet, uh, so remote no outsider had ever seen it, and many other adventures. And uh, he gives us lessons from uh, from those adventures as well. Um, RickRidgeway.com is the website. I'll mention here again that next week... Uh, if you're in Salt Lake City area, you can uh, go and see Rick Ridgeway. He'll be at the Salt Lake City Patagonia store Tuesday, May 10th, 6.30 p.m., a presentation on his book, Life Lived Wild. RSVP is required. We'll have that uh, link for that RSVP up on our website, upr.org, uh, later today. That event is co-hosted uh, by the Utah Sierra Club. We'll have much more with uh, Rick Ridgeway following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Rick Ridgway. His uh, new book is uh, a memoir, Life Lived Wild, Adventures on the Edge of the Map. Rick Ridgway was uh, part of the first American ascent of K2, first traverse of Borneo, many other accomplishments. Uh, he uh, recently received the prestigious 2022 Explorers Club uh, medal. He is uh, he chairs several climate change nonprofits, including One Earth. On Tuesday, May 10th, 6.30 p.m., uh, the Salt Lake City Patagonia store will host Rick Ridgway. He'll be presenting on his new book, Life Lived Wild, and uh, there is an RSVP required. We'll have that uh, link up on our website, upr.org. That event is co-hosted by the Utah Sierra Club. Um, Rick Ridgway, I want to, before we get into some other conversation, I want to uh, kind of close this discussion, this part of the discussion on on risk. Uh, it, that's never more in bold relief, right, than, than when you lose someone. And you, you've, you've lost some good friends uh, out there. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about You write this in, about this in the book. Uh, 1980, uh, at Avalanche in Tibet, you lost your friend uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Wright. In fact, he died in your arms. Um, what, um, uh, tell us a little bit about that. And then, then you, were, you were two years before you went back to mountaineering after that. Yeah, that's right, Tom. Uh, I was on a climb of a remote mountain in eastern Tibet called Minyakonka, uh, and it was a, such an exciting expedition because no outsider had been into that region in, uh, since the early 1930s, uh, a little over 50 years. Um, and I was with a, a group of really close friends, uh, including Yvonne Chouinard and, and uh, Jonathan Wright, 
and he was not only a friend, but Jonathan was my business partner. Uh, we were a writer photographer team. Uh, we had uh, assignments uh, ahead of us uh, from National Geographic, including one to do an article on the newly chartered Mount Everest National Park. So I was uh, just a little over 30 years old, and uh, it was a, a, a dream opportunity, a dream trip that uh, reversed suddenly in uh, one day in October 1980 when coming down from uh, the high camp that we had just established, uh, Yvonne, uh, Jonathan, and me and a, another close friend, Kim Schmitz, we triggered an avalanche, the slab uh uh, not a slab, but a point break avalanche started right under our feet and and pulled us down the mountain in a, in a thundering avalanche of snow. We we rode it for about 1,500 vertical feet, including one section where these tons and tons of avalanching snow literally went over a cliff <clears throat> with us in it. And I didn't think there was any way I could get out of it alive. It, it must have lasted a full minute and for all those long, long seconds, I just assumed I was dead. But then it, it slowed and fanned out on a, a little alluvium, um, just short of another cliff. It probably would have killed us. Uh, and I was still alive. Uh, I managed to, uh, it, when the avalanche slowed and stopped, I, I had come to the surface enough that I could pull myself out. And, uh, and then I saw my three companions around me and quickly realized that they were injured, and I was too, but not as badly as any of the rest of them, so I had to try to help them as I could, and I soon realized Jonathan was, of the four of us, the most injured, uh, and <clears throat> the others were too, but I tried to attend to, to Jonathan, holding him in my arms, giving him mouth-to-mouth, but after a half hour, he he died uh, while I was holding him, and and I buried him close to where he had died under a mound of rocks and, and, and went home and had to decide, as we talked about a minute ago, Tom, whether the, the rewards that from this life as a mountaineer were really worth the risks that were so palpably real, you know, now, now that Jonathan was dead. And, and, and I think just as big of an impact on me personally was this, that full minute when I thought I was dead and didn't think there was any way I was going to get out of that alive. And, and it, as you said, it took me a couple of years <clears throat> to think it through uh, and think through what I'd taken from that time in the mountains. And, and in those years, I also met my future wife and, and we married. <clears throat> and that made it even more complicated to know whether or not I should ever go back. But she was a remarkable woman. Jennifer, my wife, and and she told me, um, you know, she started as she, as she started to get to, we got to know each other better. She better understood just how much my time in the mountains and in these wild places on these expeditions had shaped who I'd become. And I started to wonder if I'd go back if the if the right opportunity did come along. What if there was a really interesting trip with most importantly, interesting people. And, and that happened a couple of years later when I got a call from two guys, Frank Wells and Dick Bass. And Frank was the, at that time the president of Warner Brothers Studios. And, and Dick may be a familiar name to some of your listeners because he uh, owned the Snowbird Ski Resort. That's right. And was a, a 
yeah, was, you know, lived uh, most of the time there in Utah. <clears throat> and Frank and Dick had met each other uh, through a common friend and discovered to their surprise, they had both shared this dream of trying to climb the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. Uh, and when they both discovered they shared the same dream, even though they didn't know too much about mountaineering, Dick had a little bit of climbing experience, but not much. They decided to commit and go for it and invited, got a hold of me and invited me to, to join them as a guide on any of the expeditions I might want to go on. And I went to my wife, Jennifer, and asked her what she thought. And she said, you know, maybe the, the bigger risk is not going, Rick. You know, it's not being true to who you are. And then she said, but listen, maybe the more important thing is not getting a chance to know these two guys. I mean, you don't know where they might uh, take you in your own life or what you might learn from them. Uh, and was she ever right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the, just the insight in, in her uh, ability to give me that advice and then to actually uh, partner with me to make it work. So we decided together that I should just go on three of the climbs, not seven. And, uh, and I did that. Uh, and she was right. Frank and Dick became not just friends, but, but guides and mentors. I learned so much from those guys. Uh, they, they missed Everest that seven, they tried to climb all seven mountains in one year in 1983. And, and they got, Dick got very close to the summit Everest at 28,000 feet, but then uh, turned back when his companion decided to go, got scared and went down. Uh, Dick wanted to keep going. And then he went back to Everest the next year and uh, had a permit problem. The Nepalese government uh, forced him to turn back part way up. And, and he went back again, the, third year and, and made it. And back at base camp, he called me on the radio phone. He had a wizened voice. He could hardly talk. And he said, Rico, he used to, that was his nickname for me, Rico. He says, Rico, this goes to show you that the second half can be and should be the best half. And I knew that that was Dick's shorthand for life after 50, the second mm -hmm. half. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, and that's the kind of guy he was. So, I learned from that. I, I learned so much about what enthusiasm uh, and passion, uh, you know, when mixed with those things we talked about before, tenacity, you know, the ability not just to be tenacious, but to know when to turn back and go down, all those things mixed together. But that's what I got from those two guys. Um, and even more, uh, Frank, uh, on our climbs, you know, especially the ones with Yvonne and, and all of us, we, uh, my buddies and I had been in the mountains and, and in nature enough at that time in the early 80s that, that we were able to start seeing what was going on to wilderness and wildness. And uh, we were all starting to read the books about what was happening to the planet. Um, and, and Doug Tompkins was uh, the real guiding light there and, and, and and we were able to teach uh, Frank some of those things in all the months and we had together in tents waiting out storms. And, and at the end of those seven summits trips, uh, Frank became a committed environmentalist. He, when we returned, uh, got a new job running the Walt Disney Company with Michael Eisner. And he used the money that he was earning, the millions and millions of dollars, to create a foundation 
to give back to the environment. And, and that was run by a uh, friend of ours named Terry Tamanen, uh, who uh, one of my climbing partners that uh, introduced to Frank. And, and, then, and then Terry later got hired by Arnold Schwarzenegger to run the environmental programs in California, eventually became Schwarzenegger's chief of staff. And, uh, and uh, Terry and, and, and Schwarzenegger got through the climate change bill in California, the cap-and-trade bill, which has been one of the most influential climate change initiatives uh, in history. And I, I say in the book how I've realized now there's a, a solid dotted line from that climate change initiative right back to our time uh, in tents in wild places talking about the challenges and fates of the world. So, see, we were learning so much from each other, and uh, and it was a two-way street with uh, Frank and Dick and, and many of the others I was privileged to go on these climbs with, like Yvonne Schoenard and, and Doug Tompkins. Uh, you know, things that uh, stories I tell in the book, and you, we've been saying, Tom, how it was my intention and hope that uh, from those stories and the lessons I learned from them, the leaders might be able to pull things and insights into their own lives. <clears throat> and and I hope that it was my intention the way I wrote it that, you know, I didn't I didn't explicitly tell those stories or the lessons from those stories, but rather I hope the reader can can uh, pull from them uh, the lessons themselves because it would be more meaningful that way. But uh, again, there's lessons of how we can all learn from each other, how we all need mentors, how we all need to be guides to younger people, how we all need to learn to pay attention to the what's happening to our one and only home planet. All things I hope readers pull out of the book. I was reading a uh, interview. Uh, I think this was with Forbes, and the the interviewer asked you about seven summits. You'd been just been talking about that that uh, those adventures in that book. Um, and uh, the impact that it had. Um, and you say, you said something interesting. That, so leading up to this, you said um, uh, when people would come up to you and, uh, t- and talk about their excitement, this, this kind of became more popular, right, uh, people doing the seven summits, that for some people it's more about bragging rights uh, at cocktail parties, right? And then you said the lesson that you took from these experiences was the most important thing is the footsteps, not the summits. Yeah, it wasn't just that, that. That was a lesson that came over a long time, uh, time of going into the mountains. And, uh, and it wasn't just the seven summits. But yet, what happened after the seven summits expeditions really did make me focus on, uh, on that very idea and think about and think it through more. Um, when, as I said, when Frank and Dick had the idea to try and climb those seven mountains, nobody had done it before. And and the whole phrase Seven Summits, of course, didn't exist. Uh, I remember one day, I remember very clearly, I was sitting in my little home office when uh, we were planning the trips before we had gone on the first expedition, and Frank called me up, Frank Wells, and, and he said, Rick, i got to print stationery. i got to get it printed today just so we can all use it to write letters uh, for support, and, and we need a name. And uh, I, he got any ideas, and I said, oh, I'm let me think about it. He said, well, I got one. What do you think about uh, seven summits? He said, you know, seven mountains, seven continents, seven summits. And I said, well, it does kind of roll off the tongue. And he goes, that's it. I'm ordering the stationery today. We're calling ourselves seven summits. And 
neither of us could have ever guessed that it would have entered the lexicon so commonly and much as it has today. Uh, but that's because it also spurred this kind of craze amongst, uh, uh, you know, outdoor uh, people, amongst the um, alpha people that wanted to accomplish as much as, in their, as they can in their lives and, 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 and tick off the box seven summits so that, you know, all these professional people were uh, paying guides hundreds of thousands of dollars to take them around the world and guide them up these mountains. And as you said, uh, quoting me in the book, uh, in many cases, so they could come back to their sea level lives and in the cocktail parties brag about climbing all seven summits. And, and I was, I was feeling ashamed and guilty of the role that I had played in writing the book Seven Summits with Frank and Dick and, and participating in the expeditions with them. And so unwittingly, you know, unleashed this, this craze of people um, trying to overachieve something for all the wrong reasons. And that's where I had to do some thinking about it. And, and, and I had to look at my own motivations as well during that, that process of thinking it through. And, uh, and I tried to think what I'd learned again from some of my own mentors, especially from Yvonne Chouinard, who, who really taught me at an early age uh, in climbing to really focus on, on the route instead of the summit, that the, the summit was just the result of doing the process correctly. Uh, and the process is where the enjoyment and value and insights all come from, not the summit, that the way you get to the summit is what really counts. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized that that, that is the insight. That is the, the deepest thing you can get from mountaineering uh, and climbing uh, and the probably the most profound thing you can carry from the mountains down into your your other life that you know, really all of us need to focus on on the process uh, instead of the goal and that's probably the most profound as I said the most profound thing that, that I've learned uh, in mountaineering and I I try to summarize it in the phrase when I tell people that, that it's not about the summit. It's about the footsteps it takes to get there. Let's uh, take another break. We're uh, talking uh, with Rick Ridgway. Uh, the new book is Life Lived Wild. And I'll mention that next week, Tuesday, May 10th, 6.30 uh, PM, Salt Lake City Patagonia store will host Rick Ridgway. RSVP is required. We'll have uh, that link on our website, upr.org. The event is co-hosted by the Utah Sierra Club. We'll have more following this. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We have reached our last segment with Rick Ridgway. We have about uh, seven or eight minutes left in the program. Um, Rick Ridgway recently received the prestigious 2022 Explorers Club Medal. He uh, chairs several climate change nonprofits, including One Earth, and his uh, new book, his seventh book, is Life Lived Wild. The subtitle is Adventures at the Edge of the Map. And he'll be uh, next week at the Salt Lake City Patagonia store. Tuesday, May 10th, 6.30 p.m. for presentation, and uh, RSVP is required. We'll have the link for that up on our website, upr.org. This event is co-hosted by the Utah Sierra Club. Uh, 
Rick Ridgway, um, want to, uh, this is such a fascinating, and there's many fascinating stories in the book. You were filming a climb in the Amazon rainforest with the help of a tribe who at that time had only recently been encountered by anthropologists. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, Tom, it was a remote mountain called Aratitiope uh, that was on the border between uh, Brazil and Venezuela, not too far from where uh, the border of Colombia actually intersects uh, as well. And we uh, were going into an area that was completely uninhabited by human beings, uh, and the nearest uh, humans were from a tribe called the Yanomami. Now, anthropologists had... uh, studied the Yanomami for decades, but out on the fringes of uh, their, uh, of their uh, nation, uh, where we were going, the villages there had been contacted only in the last few years by anthropologists. They were the most uh, remote villages of this uh, Yanomami nation. <clears throat> and, uh, the, you know, the people were still living so much uh, as they uh, had been for millennia. Uh, we, on our way in, at the very last village before we entered this region that was completely uninhabited by humans, including them, uh, we stopped at this village and we, did, we needed, we realized that we were short of the people we would need to help us port our supplies from as far upriver as we could get in our canoes, uh, where we would start walking overland to get to this rock spire we wanted to climb. <clears throat> and, uh, and we pulled into this village and, uh, the villagers all, you know, came running down to the river's edge to, to see us. And we could, and it was a little tense because we could see they were all really cautious about, you know, who we were and what we were up to. Um, and they were all pretty much naked. Uh, the men had a just this tiny little loincloth around their privates. <clears throat> um, and they all had their bows and arrows, and uh, a couple of them had machetes. And it was tense. <laughs> But we had with us a Yanomami who had grown up in a mission and could speak Spanish, uh, and we brought him along to be our interpreter with these people. So we had him explain to the chief that we uh, wanted a, another guy to come with us to help us carry our load. We explained what we were doing, and uh, and he understood. Uh, so through the interpreter, he pointed to this guy standing there with his bow and arrows naked, and he said, this guy will go with you. And I, through the translator, said to the chief, well, fine, tell him to go back to his hut and, uh, and gather up his things because we're going to be gone about a month. And the chief looked at me kind of quizzically, and then through the interpreter said, he doesn't need to go back to his hut. He has everything he needs. <laughs> and he was standing there naked with a bow and arrow. <clears throat> and off we went. The guy got in our canoe uh, knowing he wasn't going to be home for a month. He didn't even go back to his hut. And uh, I don't know. I think there's another lesson in that because we've been talking about lessons. Uh, And maybe the one there, Tom, is just uh, if you think about it and uh, you know how to imagine what any of our lives may have been uh, pre-industrially, how we lived our lives when, you know, we weren't surrounded by all the artifacts of our civilization that we are now, maybe our relationship with uh, the stuff in our lives might look a little different uh, than it did to that Yanomami. 
We just have about two minutes left. I, I, I don't want to let the program go without um, having you just mention briefly uh, one mm-hmm. of your friends. You have this group called the Dubois, right? Uh, one, of, one of those, by the way, one of those, at least occasionally, is Doug Peacock, who uh, is our guest <laughs> tomorrow on the show. But uh, I want to have you just give me your minute and a half uh, <laughs> a sketch of Doug Tompkins. Extraordinary work that, uh, that, he's, that he did uh, down in Chile, essentially establishing national parks. Yeah, I met Doug Tompkins through Yvonne Chouinard. Uh, they had been climbing partners since the early 60s. Uh, and uh, Doug had founded the North Face, and Yvonne went on to found uh, Patagonia, two of the most iconic brands and, and brands in the outdoor industry. And uh, we started po- palling around in, in a little posse that Doug called the Dubois because uh, he had ran into this cartoon in Japanese uh, in Japan. It was a comic book about a, a band of guys that went around just doing stuff. And, and that's what we did. As Yvonne said, we don't talk about doing stuff. We do it. So our posse became the Dubois, and that included your guest tomorrow, Doug, Doug Peacock. And, and, and Doug Tompkins was the most important mentor in my life, teaching me about the the existential crisis we're all facing. He was the one among uh, the Dubois in our little posse who could see furthest over the horizon line, who could see what was really happening to uh, the earth. And he, more than any of us, really did something about it. Yvonne certainly has with Patagonia, but Doug uh, sold uh, the North Face and then sold Esprit, the big company he and his wife had co-founded, and used all the money to commit to buying wild lands in southern South America, the place that he loved above all others, and turn them into national parks. Uh, Doug and I were in a kayaking accident uh, seven years ago. Uh, Somehow I lived and and he didn't. Uh, Another one of my close friends who's died right next to me. Uh, And his wife has gone on, Chris Tompkins, to uh, finish the uh, projects. uh, And between the two of them, They've converted over 18 million acres of wildlands in Argentina and Chile uh, into national parks, protecting them permanently, achieving the greatest conservation win by private individuals in the history of conservation. Um, and uh, a legacy uh, that I describe in, in the book uh, that has so inspired me, Yvonne, and all of our friends. I, I hope it inspires the, the readers of the book and all the, all the listeners uh, that are tuning in right now to know that you don't need to save 18 million acres, but what we all need to do is take whatever we're good at uh, and use it uh, to address this challenge that we're all facing. You know, as Yvonne says, if you're a good writer, write about it. If you're speak, a good speaker, speak out. If you got extra money, give it to groups that are trying to save our one and only home planet. The core of activists is act. We all got to act. That's what I learned from Doug Tompkins and Yvonne and, and the others of my friends. I hope that's what somebody learns reading this book. Yeah, definitely. Great, great uh, place to end the conversation. Uh, Rick Ridgway, Life Lived Wild. He'll be in Salt Lake City on Tuesday, May 10th at the Salt Lake City Patagonia store. And you can find reservation information on our website, upr.org. Rick Ridgway, uh, thank you so much for the conversation. Appreciate it. Tom, my pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.